There it is! Bob fucking Shay, she finally remembered it. I don't know who the fuck is responsible for Nightmare on Elm Street 2010, the remake, but uh, I, I, it was either Samuel Bayer or Michael fucking Bay. I don't like those guys either. Didn't make very good choices. No, no. no good choices. Bad choices all around. I mean, with Michael Bay, like, has he ever made an actual good movie? No, but that's I mean, <laughs> that's outside of the point. That's something I'm probably going to have to cut out because I don't want to piss anybody off too much. Yeah. Anyway, welcome to the LGB TerrorCast, the podcast where we talk about gays, girls, and gore. You've stuck with us through our terrible pilot episode and like a narcoleptic in a mattress one, you just keep coming back for more. Quick shout out, Mike from We Watched a Movie. It's his birthday today, uh, today on Monday, the 28th of September. And, yeah, uh, happy birthday, Mike. Happy birthday, Mike. You should go check him out. As for the podcast, we would like to thank anybody who's shown interest so far, like followed us on our social media, subscribed to this channel, given us any sort of shout out. We really appreciate it, especially, you know, because we're newer and we really need all the help we can get right now. It's crazy to me, the feedback we've already gotten with, I think, just over a hundred or so views on our first episode. It, it's a pilot and this, we have a couple friends who have been sort of uh, helping us find our audience lately. We have the director of Scream Queens following our Instagram. It's fucking insane. Somebody put us on their TV five fucking times. Special shout out to Hayden who draws to our voices for some god awful reason. People have told us that our insight has brightened their dog walks and their days and it's just amazing that we've already touched and, and sort of brightened the more mundane parts of people's lives because that's really what we're here for to simulate human intimacy isn't that what a podcast is for oh yeah totally and that's why i'd really like to get us on spotify and itunes because once we're there you are going to be stuck with us forever i am never going to get used to the uh the acceptance and the love that people have shown us no matter how big it gets and how far our voices spread that's fucking insane but without any further ado, today we're going to be discussing Nightmare 2, namely how Freddy Krueger was chosen as a reflection of the socio-political neglect and fear of gay men during the AIDS crisis, or the gay panic, and the personal nightmare of being a gay or bisexual man at that time, or just a gay or bisexual person, because honest to God it was everybody. We mm -hmm. will save our discussion of Freddy and gender expression, or gender queerness, until Nightmare 5, but I do know... Carling knows more than this than I do, but I do know that this film was originally going to be Nightmare 5, and we can mention that and bring it right back if you want. Oh, absolutely. For the original concept of this film, we were going to get sort of a proto-Jesse Walsh type of character, this teenage boy who moved into Nancy's old house with his pregnant mom and his stepdad. He did not get along with his stepdad, and that was going to be a, a plot point in the film. Freddy was originally supposed to get inside his mother's womb. He was going to possess the fetus, but they ended up scrapping this idea because the executive at New Line was pregnant at the time, and she found it way too upsetting. So they figured they could keep the possession concept, but the pregnancy thing, as Grendel already mentioned, was basically put on the back burner until they did five many years later. And I'm excited to discuss Nightmare 5, even though I don't find it a particularly good movie because it has a lot of potential for us to commentate on motherhood and the theft of parental autonomy from mothers and to possibly discuss Freddy, like I mentioned, as a gender fluid or non-binary allegory, given that he was depicted in a matronly role rather than a patronly one. He was not paternal, he was shown to be pregnant and birthing, which I find 
kind of, you know, interesting. Just a forewarning, we're going to be talking a lot about the womb and weird shit in Nightmare 5. Until then, my thoughts on Nightmare 5 and how Nightmare 5 was essentially the proto-version of Nightmare 2 uh, mainly revolve around my interest as to whether or not Jesse Walsh, or in this case, Proto-Jesse, would have still been written with so much blatant homoerotic subtext, and if not, do we think that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 would have had the same impact that it does today? I mean, it was somebody named Leslie Bohem who pitched the baby plot, and it was a man named David Chaskin, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. He was the one who wrote the gay subtext. We're going to talk about Chaskin more later, but had we got the original Nightmare 2, I believe a totally different slip of issues would have been addressed, such as the war on women's reproductive rights. That's still a subject worth discussing, but it would have been a huge loss to the gay horror community if we didn't get the Jesse Walsh we know and love today. Yeah, I, I definitely do not think that this movie would have popped off as hard as it fucking did without the gay shit. This was the 80s, uh, and I am personally unafraid to talk about the ongoing AIDS crisis or the gay panic in the media at the time. And Jesse, or Mark Patton, his actor, has become our legendary scream queen because of the potency this gay subplot had amongst its audiences. Robert Englund himself confirmed that in his own interpretation, Freddy was playing off of Jesse's fear regarding his own latent homosexual tendencies. Having a man inside of him, in this case quite literally, was thought to be a death sentence for himself and those closest to him, something that was only ultimately resolved by him suppressing Freddy's urges and settling in with a woman. It's a very discouraging ending to somebody like me. I don't see it as sweet, I don't see it as romantic, but I do see it as an interesting piece of commentary. Loving Ron Grady, because Jesse did love Ron Grady, was dangerous and or fatal for Jesse and Ron both. Jesse, quote-unquote, breaking away from his female love interest and coming to Ron's bedroom is when Freddy is born from Jesse. The climatic height of his emotions, and I do believe this was a metaphor for sex and for sexuality. So yes, I, I think this was about the AIDS crisis, and people can pry that insight from my cold, dead, gay little hands. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Jesse's love interest, I really wasn't keen on her. Her name is Lisa. I watched this movie again recently, we both did, and I really don't remember her having a lot of personality outside of pining for Jesse. Even the stuff involving her relationship with Jesse, she kept pushing her romantic and her sexual feelings on him, even though Jesse was clearly not interested in her. I think you could make an argument that her rescue of him at the end from Freddy was noble, but it becomes a lot less noble when you realize that she's rewarded with this relationship with him that really should have never happened in the first place. And that makes me wonder if she actually cared about Jesse at all, or if she just liked the piece of this pretty boy being arm candy for her. Did Jesse, like, did he hook up with her with, you know, for any more reasons than feeling grateful towards her? Like, was he scared of everything that Freddie put him through? Like, I feel like Freddie might have put him back in the closet. And I don't know. It's just, it's, it's very ugly. It's very, it's very upsetting to watch. It leaves a really bad taste in my mouth. It's unfortunate because the points that you've made, uh, everything in that movie kind of points to the answer being yes. And don't get me wrong, I agree with you on Lisa's character. I've met women like that. I have met women that prey on the fear of gay men. Uh, I've had women try to prey on my fear of being gay. 
but I don't want to project the writing decision onto a fictional person. I would rather, and this is, of course, personal preference, people can speculate on Lisa's character all they want. They can speculate on fiction all they want, because the implications held within the media and its narrative are important. Maybe not as important as real life, but they are important. But I don't want to project the writing decision onto a fictional person. I want to hold the writers and the culture that led to these writing decisions accountable. Facts are the movie's ending not only paired a gay-coded character with a female love interest, but they projected this pairing as an unequivocal ideal. Normally I wouldn't call Jesse an unequivocally gay character, but Mark Patton sells shirts that say Jesse is a homo, so I'm assuming Jesse is a homo. (laughs) Jesse overcoming Freddy, which is Jesse forcibly repressing his temptation towards other men, in Robert Englund's own words, and falling into a heterosexual relationship is portrayed as something that saves him, which implicates, and this was a very popular thought at the time, and it still is among a lot of people, you'd be surprised, this implicates that homosexual attraction is something people need to be rescued from, the achievability of which relies on the denial of the self, the suffocation of the self. This is a particularly common form of gay erasure in real life, in the media that we consume. It's something I'm very aware of. It's something I'm very critical of. It very much reflects the rhetoric that only relationships between men and women are natural, and therefore only heterosexuality is worth exploring and worth having. That heterosexuals are holy and good to the homosexuals' unholiness and revulsiveness, things that Freddy Krueger canonically represents. He is supposed to be demonic. He is supposed to be repugnant. Jesse was forced back into the closet, but it wasn't a fictional woman's decision to put him there. It was the people who made the movie and conceptualized the characters. The issue runs a lot deeper than a love interest, and I can't blame Lisa as a character for that because Lisa isn't real and didn't write the movie. Yeah, and speaking of the guy who wrote the movie, he is actually the root of a lot of these issues, and we're going to be talking about him and the role that he played in this pretty soon. Yeah, we're, we're talking about the... um cast and crew already so we should give everyone a little further insight into the film itself because i'm sure everybody's seen this film and if you haven't seen this film you should watch this film before you listen to the rest of what we have to say it will contextualize a lot of the movie's less obvious themes what we're discussing here but in order to understand that context i would hope that you understood the narrative from which we were referring Carling knows a lot more about the behind the scenes issues of this movie and, you know, how it was conceived and how it was accepted by the public or unaccepted by the public because they like to do research and I don't. So take it away. Yeah. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was a financial success when it came out, but fans and critics were very hard on the movie. I think you guys can guess why they were hard on the movie. And over the years, people did start to warm up to it. They started, you know, appreciating the homoerotic aspects, and that's what made it a cult favorite. But by the time this movie was considered beloved by the mainstream and by the gay community, Mark Patton had already just gone through this just a a horrible time. He has had it very rough. They put him through the ringer and they wrung him for everything he had. I feel terrible for Mark Patton. I know he wouldn't want me to pity him. I would not want to be pitied. But this movie kind of contributed to forcibly outing him or having him leave Hollywood. It it was a very difficult personal nightmare for him. It led to him exploring his own personal nightmares, what I'm trying to say, his feelings for men and the fear that this would be a death sentence or would make his life and his career 
exponentially more difficult to navigate, and to be fair, he was not wrong about this. Freddy Krueger was a true paragon of homosexual temptation in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. It extended beyond the film's four walls and into very real people's very real lives. Now, I personally highly recommend watching Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is Patton's reflection on this movie's impact on his life, both personally and professionally. Um, It's an absolutely killer biographical piece, and I respect the hell out of Mark, so we should talk more about Mark. Absolutely. Uh, I think we need to talk about who Mark is as a person before we talk about his character in this movie. Mark was raised in the suburbs. Mark <laughs> was raised in the suburbs of Kansas City. He began studying drama when he was in high school. He appeared in productions such as Night Must Fall and House of Blue Leaves. And uh, after he graduated, he headed off to New York with one hundred and thirty-two dollars in his pocket. He wound up staying at a Broadway hotel and was able to find work, first as a waiter, and then, after he found an agent, as an actor in advertisements and off-Broadway productions. In 1982, he landed a role in a play called Come Back to the Five and Dying, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. And he starred alongside four legendary actors, Cher, Sandy Dennis, Kathy Bates, and one of my personal favorites, Karen Black. Mark played a trans woman in flashbacks that took place before his character's transition, and reprised his role in the film adaptation of the same name. This is what launched his Hollywood career. Three years into Hollywood acting, he landed the lead role in Nightmare 2. And, you know, thank God that he did, because I have the most massive comfort crush on the character of Jesse Walsh, and I think I have since I was 16 and first caught this movie. Him dancing around his room to 80s boner jams and bumping the furniture with his ass? I felt that. Uh, Gay characters, or gay-coded characters like Jesse, especially when played by actual gay people and there's something to be said of course for a gay man playing a trans woman but we're not going to get into that because it's kind of a modern issue it's not a modern issue but it's been taken into modern concern Mm -hmm. they do matter this representation is important it does matter god knows i wouldn't know who i am without them and i can't imagine not knowing that i'm gay because i know that you can't imagine not knowing that i'm gay because that's my fucking nightmare i would hate to be a heterosexual Ugh. Yeah, you're like one of the gayest people I've ever met in my whole fucking life, so I really can't imagine that. That's just weird. It's wrong. Talk about Uh, a horror movie. Real life horror. And following the release of Nightmare 2, that's unfortunately when Mark's life started just, all these issues just started cropping up because of this film. In his own words, uh, Mark wanted to be a movie star and this movie destroyed it. Though he was out and proud in in New York, not Hollywood, Uh, Hollywood was the place that was very different and very homophobic, and after he appeared in Nightmare 2, that's when the public began to notice the gay subtext in the movie. We told you we were going to come back to David Chaskin, so I wanted to talk about how he purposely included the gay subtext in the script, and how he denied it and placed all the blame on Mark Patton for, and I quote, playing it too gay. I really do not like this guy. I think he's a total creep. Yeah, Cheskin, or Chaskin, I'm not totally sure. I'm just going to call him Dave, because I don't have any respect for this man. Dave Mm -hmm. is a massive asshole, especially since if I'm recalling my facts even remotely correctly. He only accepted responsibility for the movie's gay subtext once he realized that people were embracing it rather than rejecting it. In a way, he took clout for a struggle that Mark went through, and it was everyone else involved in the film that had to suffer the social consequences of the ridicule that this film faced for being so homoerotic. 
people love to scream and cry about virtue signaling and they especially love to blame people within the LGBT community for doing it when we talk about our own experiences. But if you want to see a real example of virtue signaling, I would just look at the shit that Dave pulled here. Nothing is less noble than only supporting gay interpretations when you profit from them and receive no further criticism in the mainstream for them. I don't know anything about Dave or his personal situation, like, let me make that clear, but even if he is a gay or a bi dude, which I kind of doubt he is, because most gay or bi dudes would not fucking throw each other under the bus like that, this is a dick move. This is not a nice person thing to have done. And that's the thing, Mark knows that, and he said that one of the main reasons that he did Scream Queen was to call Chase Skin or Dave or whatever you want to call him, out on everything that he did. I don't think, yeah, it's like you said, I don't think he likes dudes at all. I think that he admitted to adding the gay stuff as an exploitation element of all things. And the director, whose name I can't even be bothered to remember right now because this guy seems like a dick too, claimed that he had no idea it was there. And what he told Mark just very recently, like within the past two years, is that he needs to apparently move on and forget what happened to him in the mid-1980s. So I don't really get- I don't really give a shit about this guy. You know, I don't really want to give him too much credit. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I have to give major credit to Mark where it's due, because he's had to put up with these people at things like conventions and just behind-the-scenes stuff to this day. He's very- he's very, like, gracious towards them. He's very polite, and I just- I couldn't- I couldn't be that way towards people who just fucked me over like that, so- more credit to Mark. Another thing I wanted to talk about was that he received a request from a gay magazine called The Advocate after he did the Jimmy Dean movie, but he was told that he couldn't speak with a gay magazine even though he played a character who belonged to the LGBT community. And then in 1987, which was two years after A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, he was cast to play a, ground a groundbreaking gay character in a CBS TV series but only under the condition that he pretended to be straight in real life. Understandably, Mark was really fed up with all the homophobia that was being thrown at him, so he decided he was just going to stop acting altogether and decided to become a successful interior decorator. I would have fucking left too. I, I can pretend to be a lot of fucking things, but if you asked me to play a straight guy, like, in real life, like, fucking LARP a straight guy as my own personal identity, that is way outside of my pay grade, and I'm fucking unemployed. Yeah, no, no, again, personal nightmare, not gonna happen. I, w I would not pass myself off as straight if you had a gun to my head, which at some point in my life that's probably going to occur because people hate us, but that's fine. It's not fine, but that's fine. Um, I have a question, and I think mm -hmm. you have an answer. What does Mark Patton have to say about the gay panic at the time, you know, the AIDS crisis? How did that influence his decisions to connect and withdraw from his opportunities in Hollywood? I'm reading a, a direct quote from Mark on the situation, and this is what he had to say. They began to ask me if I would be comfortable playing a gay character and telling people I was straight if they began to question my sexuality. All I could think about was how everyone I knew was dying from AIDS and we were having this bullshit conversation. My heart just broke, and that was the line for me. I knew I would never be able to do what they were asking, so I walked away from Hollywood and decided to move to a place where it was totally acceptable to be gay. And that's the end of the quote. It's very sad. I feel terrible that he ever had to put up with any of that. And as if that isn't bad enough in itself, Mark actually discovered he was HIV positive three days after his 40th birthday. 
He did thankfully make a recovery at, at the hospital, and after he was stable, he decided to move to Mexico, where he met his husband, Hector. Hector Morales Mondragon is his husband's name, and they got married in 2004. Mark is a total fucking babe still, by the way. He is. He's really handsome. I follow him on Instagram, and he seems to be doing really well. It was in 2010 that he was approached to appear in the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, Never Sleep Again. And that was around the time that he found out that Nightmare 2 had become a cult classic amongst both horror fans and the LGBT community, who celebrate it as, we mentioned before, one of the gayest horror films of all time, if not one of the gayest movies of all time. It is the gayest horror film of all time. This movie is literally gayer than movies that admit they're about being gay. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, that's part of the reason why Mark... Mark agreed to appear in the documentary. He was finally able to be truthful about his sexuality, and Chase Skin, Dave, whatever, finally admitted that he included the gay subtext. And since that time, Mark has been hailed as the first male scream queen and tours horror conventions all over the world. He sells t-shirts with some of the gayer lines from the movie, such as, He's inside me and he wants to take me again. (laughs) (laughs) Along with the more derogatory ones, such as, Jesse is a homo. So as you can see, Mark's kind of reclaimed that, and I'm very proud of him for that. That is not an easy thing to do. He donates a lot of the money that he makes from his appearances to HIV treatment organizations and charities for LGBT youth, such as the Trevor Project. I love this guy. Uh, He's fucking great. And if there is a link anywhere, which I don't know if there is, we're going to check afterwards because we don't, again, I don't like doing research. That's Carling's thing. Uh, If there is a link to purchase one of these shirts, I need it. We need it in the description. We need to ask him if we can make inspired merchandise off of these shirts because I want every fucking one of them. I don't know if there's a Freddy is a homo shirt, but if there is, I need that one too because yeah, sure, I know Freddy's like technically bisexual, but I don't care. And we will also- We're allowed to call him a homo. (laughs) I'm allowed to call you a homo, sir. You're allowed. Uh, No, it's fine. You can say it too. You have a a pass. Um, Yeah. We will also be including a donation link to the Trevor Project if you'd rather donate directly instead of buying one of Mark's funny shirts, if you can buy one of Mark's funny shirts. But I don't know why you wouldn't buy one of Mark's funny shirts if you're able to buy one of Mark's funny shirts and donate to the Trevor Project, which you should just do both because, you know, both help. It's a nice thing to do. As of 2013, Mark and Hector owned a an art store in, and I'm very sorry if I mispronounce this. You're going to mispronounce this. Yes, very sorry. Porto Vellarta. <laughs> I sound so white because you I are. Am. You are. <laughs> uh, and that's where Mark sells some of his own work, including a line of painted handbags that he designed himself, and they are gorgeous. And he still flashes that Freddy glove around too, handbags and acrylics, because we love our queen. In 2019, he finally got to release his documentary, again, called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. He produced it himself, and it is available to watch on Shudder. I really recommend you guys check it out. It is both just a good... It's If, if you're a Nightmare on Elm Street fan, I think you'll appreciate it, but I think anyone would like that documentary. Shudder, please sponsor us. Shudder, please. Shudder, please. Spon- sponsor us. Please. Shudder. Please. <laughs> we need money, Shudder. I need to eat. Yeah, I'm not working either. Please help. Help me. Anyway. I wanted to talk about Jesse now and how he is the first prominent example of a final boy in horror cinema and how cruel people were to mark over the fact. Uh, Unfortunately, he was mocked for the fact he did a lot of screaming. He got visibly upset. And these are traits that people normally associated with women. And though Mark and Jesse are celebrated now, the public just weren't ready for him and they treated him like shit. 
Yeah, I have a lot of very personal, but I, I think I wouldn't go as far as to call my opinions and thoughts objective, but I do think that they are rooted in reality and in my own experiences. So I feel comfortable talking about people's treatment of Mark because it, it kind of reflects my own in a way. Specifically, the flavor of homophobia, I don't have a better word except flavor, brand. You want to brand homophobia, that's on you. The flavor of homophobia that Mark was met with was also dripping with misogyny. And many flavors of homophobia are, but being a gay man or being a bi man is seen as feminine. And vice versa, which is seen as negative. To a lot of these people, being seen as feminine means that you're lesser than a real man, aka a person who performs masculinity to the degree that is expected of them, which is not an inherently bad thing to do if you want to be a masculine person. It doesn't matter if you're cis, it doesn't matter if you're gender conforming, I don't give a shit, but what I'm saying is these people weaponize the fact that they are and they hold it as an idyllic standard over other people, and... Honestly, I don't know how they have the energy to fucking care that much about what other people do. I can feel the anger from certain people watching this who just stumbled on it in the first place. But, like, dude, calm down. It, it, it's not that deep. Like, just, no, it's not fucking offending you if somebody, like, wants to paint their nails or wear a hoodie or something and you don't think that they should. It's not your business. Do you think that all women should wear skirts? Like, calm down. It's, this isn't the 1950s. Anyway. Feminine or gender non-conforming gay and bi men especially receive a specific sort of ridicule due to the perception that they are taking it from other men and that they are under other men, which is funny to assume that we're all bottoms, but anyway. Something that is typically seen as a woman's role, which is again perceived as a negative trait. And in this way, homophobia and misogyny come full circle. Women should be just as appalled, whether you're lesbian, bisexual, or a straight woman, or whatever, by the way that Mark was treated, and as any gay or bi man should, because we suffer from the same ideology in certain ways, and that ideology is specifically applicable here. And, you know, I wanted to mention this earlier, and I think now is a better time to bring it up. One of the things that Chase Skin, Chase Skin Dave is what I'm going to call him. <laughs> one of the things that he had the nerve to say to Mark when he, you know, when he was forcefully outed, he says, it's not my fault. I didn't write that he screamed like a woman. These are actual words that came out of this man's mouth. Fuck him. Fuck I don't guy. care. I don't care if he apologized to Mark. You know, if Mark chose to forgive him, you know, I respect him for that. But I have no reason to like this guy. Why should we as, like, a community forgive him after the shit he pulled? Honest to God. Mark through? Honest to God, the only assumedly straight man, assumedly straight man that I respect on the fucking cast of staff of that movie is Robert England. Speaking of Robert England, I actually wanted to talk about how he was aware that they were making a gay film. And he actually tried to play up the homoeroticism on Freddy's end intentionally. Like, you know, just uh, he was playing with Jesse's hair and he was touching his face. I think you have quite a bit to say about that. Oh my god, yes. Anyway, oh, Robert England, <laughs> um, you fucking hunk of man, you surprisingly five foot ten hunk of assumedly heterosexual man, please email us. Um, Robert England asked himself if we love he could, you. We love, oh god. You asked if he could get really sexy with Mark's mouth on the set of that movie. He mentions the intimacy of the violence in a way between Jesse and Freddy as this seductive, devilish sort of dance, which is my words, not his, but it's essentially what he was saying. 
The way Freddy touched Jesse was both the prelude to a kiss and an allegory for oral sex, or could at least be interpreted as such. So much of that movie's homoeroticism is owed single-handedly to Robert's performance as Freddy, and Freddy is this villain who is distinctly and blatantly into men, just as much, if not more so, as he is into women. So, yeah, queer-coded villainy is a thing, and as critical as I am of it, it is meant to demonize traits associated with the LGBT community, you know, being gender non-conforming, same-sex attraction, same-gender attraction. I, I think the correct term lately is same or similar gender attraction, SGA, which I agree with. I, li- I like that. I, it, it leaves a lot of room for non-binary people to be included in any sexuality, which is, that's pretty cool. But what I'm saying is... We appreciate it. <laughs> I'm glad you appreciate it. But queer-coded villainy is a thing, and I'm very critical of it. It associates our traits... Our traits as in how we flag with being inherently predatory. I am glad England extended this facet of Freddy's character into Freddy's nightmares, and I mean hell into Dream Warriors and Freddy vs. Jason too. Which I, I know... cannot wait to talk yeah. about Freddy vs. Jason. I love that movie. That movie's really so gay. gay. It's really gay. Anyway, uh, Freddy, Freddy likes Jason. Freddy absolutely likes Jason. Did you? He made a fucking jerk off motion at him. You don't make a jerk off motion at a guy unless you're saying, "Hey, can I jerk you off?" Like I know people are like, "Oh, you're saying a oh, jerk off. Whatever you do or say, it doesn't matter to me." But I don't know. Big man, strong, sexy. I know what I know what he was thinking. I was thinking the same thing. Freddy has been pretty much canonically bisexual from the second installment of the franchise, which I'm apt to appreciate just because I love Fred. But again, queer coding villainy is something that is meant to paint us and the way that we flag as predatory. And I don't appreciate that. I just want to fuck Freddy Krueger, so... The fact that people will still insist that Freddy is straight, it makes me laugh my ass off. I have seen straight women say that, and I have seen straight men... Straight man. Straight man say that. And I'm just like, what do you have to gain from it? Like, are you so offended by this idea that your favorite horror icon is into dudes that you're willing to just shut off your eyes and your ears? It makes you look really ignorant and it's not going to make people like you. There is a deleted scene from Freddy's Nightmares. We could do a fucking like year long thing on Freddy's Nightmares. I swear to God, but there is a deleted scene that I have the link to if anybody wants it of Freddy in Freddy's Nightmares sitting on a dude's lap bouncing on his dick like this was not they were not being subtle about it anymore he wasn't tricking a dude into kissing him by pretending to be a lady with big bazongas no no this was Freddy in all his glory sitting on a dude's lap bouncing on his dick and the dude fucking liked it like I'm not gonna get too NSFW here but that dude was fucking into it and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to repeat what Freddie said in the clip. <laughs> if you really want it, just ask us for it. Just just trust us. It's gay. It's gay. Back to the behind the scenes stuff <laughs> before we start talking for an hour about how Freddie is, how Freddie loves men. Uh, I wanted to talk about how Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was actually filmed at one of the biggest gay bars in Los Angeles. Which is funny, because a lot of people who watched that movie didn't seem to realize it was a gay bar unless they were also gay. I find it funny because there were same-sex couples canoodling on screen. I mean, you had, like, a, two women with their noses pressed together and men with their nipples and, like, little leather satchels. So I don't I don't know how you watch that scene and think that they're just, like, at, like, a weird BDSM leather bar. But no. No, it was a gay bar. It was a gay... I, I Go back and watch the scene. I think we need to talk more about Freddy as a queer-coded villain parodying the whole predatory older man going after the young, confused boys thing. As a gay man yourself, you have a lot of insight to that sort of thing. Yes. 
me getting to talk for a long time, it really feeds into my ego. But <laughs> I will personally say a little bit about that, sure. The Creeper from Jeepers Creepers, who was written by a gay man as viciously as I fucking hate Victor Salva and hope that he bites down on a metal bar in prison while people stomp on the back of his head for the rest of his fucking life, Jeepers Creepers Man intentionally parallels this stereotype. They make the monster gay, and they make the monster consume as a means of expressing same-sex attraction. <laughs> they do this to paint young, confused boys as prey items rather than prospective interests, which innately implicates that sexually confident older men are predators. Predators like Freddy is implied to be do exist in the gay community, but this was not a respectful way to reflect the fact, especially if you consider that they considered making Freddy a pedophile, this whole idea that the creeper preys on 14-year-old boys and shit. There is a way to discuss predatory behavior within the gay male community that is not exploitative, and all Dave was doing was being exploitative, and I'm sure that all Victor Salva was doing was projecting some weird fucking fantasy on a character who, quite frankly, is way too good for that and doesn't deserve his director. But what I'm saying is, while predators like Freddy do exist in the gay community, attraction itself does not a predator make. These concepts shouldn't be confused. Predatory gay and bi men exist is a true statement, but it is not a statement that is mutually exclusive to gay and bi men are not inherently predatory for liking other men. Being an LGBT person, whatever acronym or letters of the acronym that you fit under, does not make you a predator. Lesbians and bi women suffer the same stereotype. They are often blamed and scolded for adopting the male gaze simply because they're attracted to other women. And don't even fucking get me st- I know, I know. You can talk about that a little if you want, but don't even fucking get me started on trans people being painted as deceptive or fetishizing for wanting their attractions to be treated with respect just because they're trans. Like, that's another episode for another time, but that shit really pisses me off too. We will be doing episodes about being trans, we will do episodes about being non-binary, and we're going to do episodes on being a lesbian, which I know quite a bit about. But as of right now, we're going to be talking about how eroticism and fear tend to overlap in gothic fiction as well. How the male villains tend to possess a sexual threat against women and lesser men. And that's something that's existed since before Dracula. Um, I feel like you could probably talk about Grendel, not yourself, but the character yeah. as an early example of a queer-coded villain. And you could maybe talk a little bit about his mom, too. If nobody could tell by the name that I've applied to myself, I fucking love Grendel. He is my all-time favorite literary antagonist in anything ever. Approach this little rant I'm about to go on with the understanding that I am going to tie this back to Freddy Krueger and queer-coded villainy in the horror genre specifically at the end of it. But I do want to talk about Grendel for a second. He... We could do a Grendel episode eventually, I think. Oh, please. Yeah, we need to do some literary episodes. But um, in John Gardner's novel, aptly named Grendel, our titular character is portrayed as being attracted to, or at least fascinated sexually and physically, and excited by the male physique, whilst he is repulsed by any female expression of sexuality. I use male and female in this sense in terms of biological sex. Yes, I know biological sex is just as much of bullshit as gender roles is bullshit, but we are talking about 550 AC and they this is Europeans and they had no fucking idea what they were saying. That's what I'm getting into. He 
views anybody who identifies as a woman, he views their nude bodies as disgusting, he loathes them, he's scared of them, they make him cry, and he doesn't want anything to do with them. But when he sees Beowulf stripped down, and when he sees these other men stripping down to their skivvies, and he listens to them telling poetry, and he sees how powerful they are, his mouth waters, his skin tingles, and that is, to me, a clear representation that Grendel is a homosexual. Similarly to Freddy, and similarly to the Creeper, and this this came before either of them, the way that Grendel therefore interacts with these so-called innocent, godly, perfectly heterosexual male villagers involves him feeling that they've rejected him. He becomes enraged by this rejection, and he kills them, he eats them. Same-sex attraction has almost always been depicted in specifically Eurocentric uh, media as this consumptive and monstrous thing. This lethal thing to the rest of society. This thing that does not accept no as an answer and does not only not care if you're scared of it, but actively delights in your fear, as Freddy does and as the Creeper does. If you've noticed, that is a theme with them. They like that you're afraid. They want to make you uncomfortable. They are also portrayed as bisexual or gay. And in Gardner's case, he was not, as an author, blaming Grendel for what he did in the narrative. But the facts remain the same, and Grendel's mother, who was twice as large and ten times as vicious as her son, was this fearsome, hairy metaphor for trans womanhood. So yeah, gay villains and trans villains and how they're depicted as these bestial, twisted creatures living on the fray of society who go into society only to prey on society's most wholesome and undeserving. This is nothing new. Freddy Krueger did not start this. Freddy Krueger did not end this. And he was absolutely a part of this. Nightmare on Elm Street 2 contributed to the broad popularization of this archetype, but in no way was it the birth of it. And I don't know if Carling wants to add anything else here. This is probably going to be a shorter episode, maybe around 30 minutes. But if you want to talk about anything else, feel free. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention, it's really more of a side note. Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I think... This is the movie where Freddy was actually being recognized as a character, while the first movie was more about the concept of a man that invades your dreams, and if you haven't seen episode one, we talk a lot more about that. Uh, Nightmare 2, I think, is when people began to realize who Freddy Krueger is. Critics were taking note of the fact Freddy talks a lot, and it's funny because he does talk quite a bit in this one, but, you know, he gets even worse in the later sequels. Uh, Any fan of Freddy or horror in general knows that. That's something critics were beginning to notice and fans were beginning to notice. And, you know, I have to say, thank God they got Robert Englund back to reprise his role because they almost didn't. Robert asked for a raise, I believe, after Nightmare 1. I'm not sure if he asked for a raise or if they were just, if New Line was just being cheap and trying to cut costs. But they said, oh, Robert, you know, we don't really need you to come back. We'll just hire a stuntman to do it. And it was a complete fucking disaster. Apparently the guy, no offense to whoever he was, apparently he was walking around like Frankenstein. It was just, it was not good. It was not good. And they realized, okay, we're get Robert on the phone. We need to get him back. And Robert, being the gentleman that he was, uh, he accepted and he did get the money that he deserved. Good. And, you know, I do find it interesting, again, as an afterthought, but not really, that the movie that establishes Freddy as a character, as a person with a personality, essentially, somebody who communicates, moves in, and interacts with the world, the movie that establishes him as a character is also the movie that establishes him as bisexual. 
Which, again, ties back to, I don't know how people think this guy's straight, because ever since he started being the Freddy Krueger that we know and love, he has always liked men. There has always been an implication there that he likes men. The movie that created his uh, backbone, really, the skeleton of his character had the meat put on it by Nightmare on Elm Street 2. The movie that meatified him was the movie that established that Freddy Krueger, yummy, was just as seductive and just as much of a sexually aggressive force towards men as he was towards women. Jeepers Creepers established that right in the first movie, but this one took till a sequel, and that's fine. But how the fuck do you think Freddy Krueger's a heterosexual? He pinned pinned Jesse, poor Jesse, he pinned Jesse against the wall by his throat and called himself daddy. I don't know how you look at that and you're like, hmm, he's circling his mouth with his knife, but I'm sure that's just, that's a heterosexual thing to do. That's just what bros do. I could go on this rant about how heterosexual female fans treat Freddy in particular because it makes my fucking blood boil. But I know myself, and I know how I get when I'm mad, so we should probably save that for the episode where we just discuss Freddy Krueger as a character, I think. The fuck it catch-all episode, yeah. Yes. Other than that, that is all we really have to say for today. I would like to know in the comments down below if people prefer shorter episodes uh, with a little more script and a little more structure, or if they would rather us go into our longer episodes and kind of just let ourselves go wild. Ultimately, what we are doing this for is not just for the education, but for the entertainment of our listeners, because we really do appreciate you guys more than anything. No matter how many of you there are or will ever be, you guys are the best. We like that we touched anybody's life, much less over 100 people already. That's that's insane. Really flattering. It's, it's amazing. And I hope beyond anything that we can continue to provide content that you guys enjoy. Thank you for coming, really. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe if you want to get future installments of this podcast sent directly to your ear holes. Tell us about any clipping issues or audio issues that you're still noticing. I'm sure Carling's voice clipped out a couple times. There's only so much I can do in Audacity with our shitty internet connection. Just be gentle. It's our first time. And be sure to contact us for any other questions or comments or concerns at any of our socials in the description below if you have suggestions or would like to join us on the podcast. We are always glad to have you, and we will see you next time for Dream Warriors. Fuck. Stay frosty, my friends. 